Good morning, everybody. Um, today's Bible reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapters 1 and 2. Uh, can be found on page 87 of your pew Bibles and on the words behind me. These are the names of the son of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and, if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour. They built Pithom and Rameses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave his order to all his people, Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then this sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at, the hard, watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. 
looking his way, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to, troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? Rule asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Thanks for reading, Michael, and good morning, everyone. My name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors here with Jack. Thanks for being with us this morning. It's really great to be with you. I want to start by asking you a question. Have you ever been been dragged around by your parents or, or maybe your grandparents to see places that were part of their childhood? I remember lots of trips as I was growing up, as a kid following my dad to the places that had had some special meaning for him or someone in his family. And to be honest, I kind of hated it as a kid. Funny thing is, is that we've just been on a family holiday together And while we were away, guess what I did? I dragged my kids with me to all the places that I went when I too was growing up. For me, it was terrific. I got to take them to the places uh, that I went. We got to eat the food that I got to eat when I was a kid, hokey pokey ice cream. We walked on the beaches that I visited as a child. And we even went to my grandparents' shack where I spent a lot of time growing up as a child, or at least lots of holidays there. And I took this photo of my kids. You can see... Three of my kids are acting well in this photo, and my third, Gus, is just letting you see how he actually feels about doing this. I loved reminiscing with my kids, and they told me time and time again, Dad, you're crackers. That's what they said. I think I like doing this, um, perhaps in a small way, because I think these places, or at least the things that happened while I was there, in some way shaped who I am today. You could say, these places are part of my identity. Now, I wonder this morning what places or what events or what things contribute to your identity as a person today. Maybe those things were hard things. Maybe a period of sickness or injury or maybe a trauma has contributed to who you are today. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it was an overseas trip or meeting someone special that shaped you to who you are today. 
we stop thinking about ourselves as individuals for a moment and we think about our country, what are the things that have shaped the identity of our country, Australia? I think things like Gallipoli and Marbo and maybe gun buyback schemes and those sorts of things contribute towards Australia having the identity that it has today. What I'm asking you to do is to think about what is it that makes these things for you? And I'm asking that because for the Israelites, for for God's special people in the Old Testament, the Exodus, the Exodus contributes to their identity. Now, if you're new here or just coming to grips with the Bible, the, the Exodus is that part of the story in the Bible where God's people, the Israelites, exit Egypt. Andrew Reid, who wrote the Bible study book that some of us will be working through in small groups over the next term or so, says that no event shaped the identity or the attitude of the Israelites more than the Exodus. It's a big part of the story of Israel. But I reckon this story, although it's a big part of Israel, I think it's also a story that speaks to us today. This story helps us to understand what our God is like. It helps us to get to know our God. And I want you to be saying, as we work through this, uh, this book over the next term, I want you to see and know our God as a God who rescues. But more than that, and we heard this in the kids' talk, I want you to see that our God is a God who keeps His promises. I want you to see God is a promise-keeping God. And that's part of the reason why I'm excited to be looking at Exodus with you over the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at this for the whole of the term. If if today is your first day with us, today is a a bit of a different day for us as a church. Uh, It's a special day for us because we're all together. Since August 2020, we've been meeting as two different services on Sunday mornings at 9 and 11. And today we've come back at 10 o'clock. Meeting at 9 and 11 has been really great for us as a church. It's enabled us to grow. It's given us lots of room in our building to have space for newcomers and visitors. And I've been very thankful for that. But for this term, we're back together. We're a bit cramped. Maybe you can smell your neighbour a bit more than you'd like. But the reason for that was because I want us to encourage each other to keep pressing on for Jesus. I've been using the analogy of Weber barbecue. Some of you have read this analogy already. I love cooking food on a Weber barbecue, and, and what I've found is that if you put all the coals together in a pile in the Weber barbecue, the barbecue's hotter. If you want to cook slower, with lower heat, you push the coals apart, so they're separate. I want us as a church, this term, to be heating each other up, to be warming each other up. I think we're probably doing that practically physically right now in this room. But really, it's a metaphorical thing. I want us to be encouraging each other and to be reminding each other that our God is still active in this world, that He's alive, that He's very much at work amongst us. And I want all of us to remember that our God is still a God who's rescuing people. I hope Exodus will help us to see this with clarity, that God has done this in the past. And I also remember that God is still a God who rescues God is still a God who is in the business of saving people. All right, as we jump into Exodus, 
A little bit of context for you might be helpful. Exodus, of course, is near the start of the Bible. If you haven't already opened your Bible, I'd love you to open it to page 87. That's where we're looking at. It's only the second book in the Bible. It comes straight after Genesis. And today, I want you to see that Exodus is, in fact, a, a continuation of the Genesis story. Commentators uh, tell us that the very first word in the original language in Exodus is and. It's not there in the English Bible, but the very first word in the Hebrew is and. And in other words, what they're trying to say here is that this is a continuation of the Genesis story. It's picking up where Genesis left off. This is not a new story. This is a continuation. And the last few chapters of Genesis will help us understand why we're in Egypt, why we're in this part of the world. We haven't got time to cover all of that today, but let me remind you of the story of Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. You might remember Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and he ended up in Egypt where he became powerful, a ruler. And as part of that, he helped to store up vast quantities of food so that when famine came to this part of the world, Joseph was able to provide for his brothers and his family. And hence, the people of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are in Egypt. But what we really need to know from Genesis is that in Genesis, God makes some promises. And we heard about this in the kids' talk. Uh, firstly, those promises are made to a man called Abraham. And those promises continue on to Abraham's descendants. Now, when you think about promises, I wonder what springs to your mind. Maybe it's um, saying, yes, mum, I'll be home by 10pm. Maybe that's the sort of promise that you're used to making at the moment. Or maybe it's a promise like marriage. I've got a photo on the screen behind me. My marriage to Meredith, 23rd of November, 2002. If I think about making promises, this is one of the promises that springs to mind. This is pre-digital photos. I have to take a photo with my phone of the photo in the photo book in order to show you this today. That's how old we're getting. When we talk about promises in the Bible, when we read about promises or we read about covenants, I think our minds are first and foremost to go to the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And I want you to see that these promises, they act like a foundation stone for the book of Exodus. And so before we get to Exodus, let's just have a quick look at these promises as they first appear in Genesis chapter 12. That's on the screen behind me. You like to flick there in your Bibles if you'd like to read it yourselves in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. God tells Abram, his name will change later to be Abraham, to go to the land that God will show him. He tells Abram that he will make him into a great nation and that God will bless him and that he will be a blessing to all people on earth. And in a way, these promises can be summarized as land, people and blessings. And I want you to see these promises are the foundation upon which the book of Exodus sits. Okay, so now come back to Exodus. The first six verses with the names, well, they firmly link us with what's gone on before in Genesis. I've already told you that the first word is and, but we also see from these names that this is a continuation of the story. Now come down to verse 6 
and we're going to read it to you. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So what we see in verses 6 and 7 of, of Exodus chapter 1, what we see, don't we, God keeping his promises. Well, all that sort of, in a way, we do, don't we? The population is increasing. The Israelites are, are fruitful and increasing in number. The land's filled with them, so much so that the Egyptians are worried, aren't they? In verse 10, we see the Egyptians are worried because the Israelites are so numerous, they might form allegiances with their enemies and, and challenge them in a military way. And so the Egyptians set out to increase their oppression of the Israelites. They're already slave workers, but in verses 11 to 13, we see these increasing measures to make life harder for the Israelites. And yet that doesn't work, and, and the Israelite community continues to grow in number. I can't be certain because the text makes no comment on this, but I reckon the Egyptians would have been surprised by this. I reckon they would have been pretty cluey when it comes to managing slaves. My guess is, is that these measures had worked for them in the past. If your slaves are growing too much, put more pressure on them. But here, despite the ruthless work that's set before them, the Israelites grow. And so the Egyptian king goes for the jugular in a way and he orders that newborn babies be killed. Presumably the king's thinking ahead here, if, if there's no young men, it'll be hard in years to come for the Israelites to form military armies. And firstly, Pharaoh orders the midwives to destroy male babies as they're born and yet they're named, aren't they, these midwives? Shipra and Pua, the midwives, they fear God and so... They disobey the Egyptian king and they let the boys live. I take it this was a pretty risky thing for these midwives to do. And the fact that they're named here in the story probably shows that they became, in a way, heroes for the Israelites. They feared God. And in verses 21 and tw uh, 20 and 21, we see God rewarding these midwives with families of their own. And so the king, the Egyptian king, then changes the order. Every Hebrew boy now must be thrown into the Nile. And so we get to the end of chapter 1 with a couple of things really clear. God's people are growing in number. That promise has been kept. And yet, although they're growing in number, they're facing opposition from the Egyptians. And the second thing is that although God seems to have remembered his promise to grow his people... Clearly, they don't have a land of their own. At this point, they're not really much of a blessing to the rest of the world. And so we get to the end of the chapter, end of chapter 1 in Exodus, with a question that we should be asking. Will God save his people? Will he provide for them land of their own? Will they be rescued? That's the question, I think, that we should be asking when we get to the end of chapter 1. And I want you to see that chapter 2 answers that question by zooming in on a single Hebrew family. Chapter 1 had the nation on view. Chapter 2 deals by zooming in one particular family. And it's a Levite family, the family that Israel's priests will come from. And this is no mistake here, I want you to see. This is not God acting on a whim. God has a plan here. A man and a woman marry and they have a baby boy. In verse 2 of chapter 2, we read that the mother sees him as a fine child. I don't know what this means. Maybe she counted his 
fingers in his toes and she's sure that he had 10 of each and thought that was fine. Maybe he slept well from day one. I don't know. What is it that makes a baby a particularly fine child? I'm not sure. We're not given the details, but what we know is that his mum goes and hides him for three months. And when she can hide him for no longer, she takes a basket made out of papyrus, coats it with tar and pitch that it's waterproof and floats it off into the Nile with her son inside. And most of us know this story pretty well. We've heard it lots of times. But how do you think his mum and dad must have felt as they did this? They'd had the baby with them for three months at this stage. It's a familiar story, isn't it, for us? But I don't want you to forget how brutal and how ruthless this life in Egypt was. In this case, it's not the end of the life for this baby because Pharaoh's daughter is bathing nearby. She sees the basket, she hears the baby's cries and she takes pity on this baby and raises him as her own son. Now, there are so many layers going on in this story, aren't there? But do you see at this point the baby's now called Moses and it's being fed by its own mother and she's paid to do this work? This is a multi-layered story. Not only does Moses survive, but his mother is paid to feed him. For those of you who know the story well, I think you'll see here an echo of what's to come when the Israelites finally leave Egypt and as they do so, they plunder it. They're given treasures. And as we read this story today, knowing what comes after, we can't help but see God at work in these words, can we? But I want you to imagine just for a moment what it felt like for that mum and how distant God must have seemed for her when she wove that basket and when she painted the tar and pitched onto it and when she put her baby in and pushed that basket away. We love this story today, but it must have been hard for the mum and the dad back then. Have you got your church Bibles open, and it may be in the Bible that you're carrying otherwise, I want to point something out to you in the footnotes of this story. You might have noticed in verse 3, a little footnote that's designated in our black Bibles with the letter A uh, on page 88. Now, down the bottom of the page, you'll see that the original word here to describe the basket can also mean ark. I've learned from the commentators this week that this word for ark is is not a common word in the Old Testament. It only occurs here in this story and in the flood narrative with Noah. And Peter ends in his commentary, I'm going to mention Peter ends a few times this morning, he points out these things, the links between Moses and Noah. Both are leaders of God's people. Both appear in watery situations of destruction Both are placed by God in an ark that's treated with bitumen and floated onto a water that otherwise brings destruction to other people. Both of these leaders are God's means for delivering his people. Why does this matter? Why the link with Noah? Well, again, I think the author wants us to see the same God at work, the God who created the world in Genesis, the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God who keeps his promises. And here he is saving, preserving and rescuing Moses. The story is almost ironic though, isn't it? 
the way in which God chooses to work here. I mean, surely God was powerful enough just to strike Pharaoh down, to deal one swift blow, to give him a heart attack or something like that. But that's not how God works in this story. Instead, God chooses to work in and through the commands of this king. God saves. That's clear. But I want you to see that life is still hard. Especially for Moses' mum and dad. How does this story leave you feeling? God saves, but it's still hard, isn't it? In his commentary, Peter Enns reminds us that the Christian life, for us today, is no guarantee from immunity to trials. No guarantee that we won't face hardships. No guarantee that we won't have challenges in life. Being a Christian doesn't stop us getting cancer. doesn't stop you losing your job. And I want to suggest that if our government passed a horrible law that required us to throw our babies into a river, being a Christian wouldn't necessarily protect our children. And yet the story of Moses reminds us that our God works for the good of his people even if that's not immediately obvious. I wonder if there are any New Testament passages that are resonating for you as we kind of think about God working for the good of his people. For me, and for Peter Enns, he suggests that we look at Romans 8. I want to read to you Romans 8, verse 28 for you right now, just to remind you of these words that Paul writes in the New Testament, many years after the events of of, um, Moses and his life. This is what Paul says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In Romans 8, Paul's not saying that nothing bad ever happens to Christians, is he? Of course not. You think about Paul's own life, his persecution, his jail time, the oppression that he faced in life, to conclude from Paul's life that nothing bad ever happens to Christians would be would be just madness. But what Paul does say is that whatever happens will someday work out for good. Perhaps we won't see that good in in this lifetime. And I think it's also clear from the story of Moses that that God doesn't necessarily just change the circumstances in which we find ourselves, although of course he can do that. Rather, what we see in the story of Moses is that God works through the circumstances that we're in for our good. And I think what that means is that ultimately he's working through the circumstances we find ourselves in to make us more like his son. To make us more like Jesus. We're going to jump through the rest of chapter 2. Sorry, that's my mic. Jump through the rest of chapter 2 and concentrate just on the last few verses of chapter 2. Now, for those of you who want to spend some more time looking at uh, the verses that we're skipping over, we're going to have Matthias Media Study Guides and Exodus available in the next few weeks for you to take home. You can purchase one from here. For those of you who are looking at this in community group, you'll be able to work through these verses uh, in a little more detail in your community groups. But I want to jump through to the end of chapter 2, and I want us to think about the cries of a baby boy. We've, sorry, we've heard about the cries of a baby boy who cries. Now I want us to think about the cries of a nation. Two cries in this passage. Let me read to you from verse 23 of chapter 2. (laughs) 
But during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Can you see here that just as Moses cried out from the basket that he was placed in, so here we hear the Israelites crying out to God. And just as Moses faced a perilous future, well, Israel's future is in doubt as well, isn't it? And so I want to suggest to you that as readers, we, we should at this point in the story have, have little doubt about what the ending is going to look like. We don't yet know how Israel is going to be rescued, but just as God heard the cries of Moses in the basket and rescued him, we can be pretty confident, can't we, that God is going to hear the cries of Israel and also rescue them. I think in a way, Moses in the basket is kind of a foretelling of God's work with the nation as a whole. But when we look at the nation of Israel, there's another layer in this story, isn't there? And that's to do with the covenant. The idea of God keeping his covenant promises. And surely this is at the forefront of our author's mind. See, the author has told us that this is a continuation of the story from Genesis. He wants us to see that God has been keeping his promises. We've seen that with the nation growing in people. But what of the land? What of the blessings? And here they're specifically mentioned by drawing in on the idea of covenant. And I want you to see here that God hears the cry of his people. And I suggest that he's going to remember the covenant he's made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so we know the outcome of this story. We just don't yet know how God's going to do this work. That's the first two chapters of Exodus. How do we wrap all this up? Well, I suggest to you today that what we've seen is the start of an event that's going to go on to define Israel. That's their exit and their rescue from Egypt. This event, I want to suggest to you, is so profound that it comes a very part of the identity of God's people. And this event is tied to the God of Genesis. This event is tied to the God who created the world in which we live. And this event demonstrates to Israel that God's promises made in Genesis are more than just words. They're real and they're lasting. Now that's really all to do with, with the Old Testament, with the people of Israel. What about us? What about us as Christians today? Sure, we're part of the people of God today, but we're not ethnically Israelites, are we? So my question is to you, what role does this play in our identity? And I'm borrowing again from Peter Enns here, but I want to suggest to you that, that like the Israelites, we too are connected to a God who works historically in the world. We too are connected to a God who acts, who doesn't just speak, but does things. But unlike the Israelites, I reckon our spiritual identity, if we really wanted to put a flag and say this is the one historical event that grounds our identity, I want to suggest it's not to do with the Exodus, but rather it's to do with Jesus. See, the New Testament reminds us time and time again that our connection and our identity are with Jesus. We're described as his brothers and sisters. We're described as co-heirs with Christ. 
For us in the church, we're described as children of God. The church, that's us, are described as Christ's bride, and we're also described as the body of Christ. I want to suggest to you that while the Exodus is profound and, and meaningful for us today, it demonstrates, doesn't it, God's deliverance of his people. I want to suggest to you that the thing that really should identify us as Christians is a different sort of rescue. It's a rescue that we see more fully in the person and work of Jesus. See, we know that we will be rescued from sin and death, not because the Israelites were, but because Jesus died and was raised. And I suggest that that is the critical event for us as Christians. I'm quoting Peter Enns here, and I've got this quote on the screen here. But if you want to think, what is my identity as a Christian? Where do I fit in in this world? Peter Enns says, the answer is, you are in Christ. Your past is noble, your present secure, and your future certain. You are in Christ, and he does not change. See, Israel needed a physical deliverance from Egypt. They needed to get out of there. They were being oppressed. And I've been thinking over the past month or so about the things that we need to be rescued from. I wonder what you would say you need to be rescued from as a person. For some of us, there are going to be tangible earthly things that we need rescue from. But I reckon for most of us, the great rescue that we need today is not a physical rescue. Most of us really have all that we ever really need. The rescue that I think we need and the rescue that Adelaide needs is a spiritual rescue. Our rescue is from darkness and from sin. Our rescue is from a life where we disregard God and where we keep on ignoring Him. What most of us in Adelaide need is, is not deliverance from an oppressive government, but, but spiritual salvation. Today, I hope you've seen in Exodus a reminder that our God acts in the world. We've seen that in the tangible salvation of Moses, a baby placed into a basket and saved through most extraordinary means. And we're going to go and see, as we read through the rest of this book, the extraordinary salvation of the nation of Israel, their rescue and their deliverance from Egypt. And as we read that, I want you to be encouraged by seeing God at work in and through the people of Israel. And I want you to be reminded that God is still at work in the people in Adelaide. He's working in and through the person of Jesus, working to save us, to rescue us, to deliver us from darkness and sin. I want to finish by reading a verse from the New Testament from Colossians chapter 1. It's a thanksgiving and praise to God the Father. And I'll read to you from verse 13, and here we're going to be reminded in these verses of the sort of rescue that I think we need in Adelaide. It's a rescue from the dominion of darkness and sin. Let me read to you these last few verses as our way to finish up. This is what it says. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That, I think, is the sort of rescue that the people of Adelaide need. And I pray that God would be at work in and amongst us doing that and that we'd be seeing uh, this work through our church. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this story. The story 
of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And we pray that as we work through it, we would be reminded afresh of your power, your might, your magnificence and your control in the world. Father, we thank you that you're a God who was active back then. We thank you that you made promises that we can trust in today. Thank you for this story that reminds us that you keep your promises, that you're a God who rescues and saves. Father, we plead with you for the people of Adelaide that don't know you, who live in darkness. We ask that you would save them. Father, we ask that you would be at work in our church, helping us to be those who are willing to tell others the good news about Jesus. Please work through us and please encourage us as we see you as a saving, rescuing God. Amen.